0: The children of Lake Ellis, known or unknown, alive or in memory, wherever you are, my Mai, Whakarongo Mai, finally our voice has been heard.
1: Ke
0: I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and that is Leonie McEnroe. She is one of the children of Lake Alice who has told her story at the Royal Commission into Abuse and in Care more than 40 years after the unit closed. They are stories of abuse, electric shock treatment and painful drugs and a warning some details may upset listeners.
1: And every time I got ECT it just made my anger worse. I got more and more violent. I hated it. Crying, you're crying, but because of the mouth guard, well, and he turns it back on again, and it goes on or whatever until you're knocked out, that's when it stops. But the pain, it's just like being hit by a sledgehammer on your head. I say to the Royal Commission, blasting a child's brain with voltage high enough to just about break your bones and expecting their child to have a normal life afterwards, it's not going to happen. You could see black zigzags going through your head. Same as the second and the third rounds of black zigzags still in your head, excruciating pain. You just want to die.
0: Complaints about the treatment of more than 300 young people in the child and adolescent unit of the psychiatric hospital near Fanganui emerged in the 1970s when it was still open. And went on for decades, but no one was held to account.
1: The police wish to apologize to Lake Ellis survivors for these failings.
0: The state failed them during time at Lake Ellis and failing to protect them from what can only be described as torture at the hands of Doctor Salwyn Lex and other Lake Ellis staff. If it was today, there is no way Dr. Lex would be practicing. Our job is to protect the public. We're not there to protect doctors. Today on the detail, I talked to RNZ reporter Andrew McRae. He has been at every day of the hearings.
1: Every morning uh, there's a karakia.
0: Please stand for the opening prayer and song.
1: And a wata, which I think just settles the room down. Once that is finished, that might take you. No more than five minutes. Please be seated. You, they get into the daily grind, I guess, of, of witnesses.
0: katoa. mai. Hōki mai te o uh, Welcome to everybody to the last of the hearing days of the Lake Alice
1: Inquiry. We know who's going to appear each day and they try to be as informal as you possibly can when you have a Royal Commission.
0: And this room is in new market.
1: It's a new market in an office building. A new market on the second floor, which is uh, the offices of the the Royal Commission, and it's been specifically designed for the Royal Commission into Abuse and Care, very similar to a, a large courthouse, either district or the High Court. For survivors, they they actually have you know difficulties dealing with authority because of what's happened to them. So putting them in an environment, uh, even like the current one, I guess does scare some of them because uh, it's got that official look about it. I think some of the survivors have found that reasonably uncomfortable because they've gone from being abused in state care to having an inquiry which has has a look of the state about it. But the Royal Commissioners have gone out of their way to make the uh, survivors feel comfortable, they are always told they are believed. It's not like a court where you have to prove your evidence. Because a lot of uh, the survivors, in terms of Lake Alice, we're talking about over just over 300 young people went through that adolescent unit over that period in the 1970s. The actual definitive figure isn't known because a lot of record keeping was a bit slack in those days and some files have been lost. And only a, a very few actually get to tell their stories at public hearings. Like this particular one, there were around about 20 survivor witnesses out of potentially hundreds, although some of those survivors have since died.
0: From your coverage, how would you sum up what you've heard?
1: There's certainly certainly common themes that have run through all the witnesses, and just about 99% of them have come from broken homes, They've been abused physically and sexually at home or by friends within the community or at school. They've all ended up in welfare homes or foster homes where there's always more abuse, sexual, physical, psychological. Then they ended up in Lake Alice, sent there primarily under the guise of having some sort of mental illness, but none of them actually did have... A uh, mental illness at all. It was more about behavioural issues, uh, and what they used to call back in those days, delinquency. And after Lake Alice, they often ended up in youth jails, borstals, onto adult jails. No education to speak of because of their their time in state care. A of suicide attempts. A number of them have been successful. Certainly, among all the all the survivors, a lack of trust of authority. Unable to hold down jobs, uh, maintain family relationships, the, the children have often gone into care themselves, so that cycle starts again, so there's a intergenerational uh, abuse basically, so every survivor had a story that fitted into that.
0: And how would you describe the atmosphere while the survivors were telling their stories?
1: Often you could just hear a pin drop in the in the hearing room because the stories were so compelling. The longest session I had was about forty-five minutes. I remember Leeks's face when he would turn on and turn the knob, he smiled every time. And it was just horrific. You know, young people, some of them, you know, as young as eight, seven or eight were sent there. And you've got to remember that this unit was part of the the bigger lake Ellis psychiatric uh, complex, a fairly hideous place, you know a forensic psychiatric uh, hospital with uh, adult patients who were there often for life and the unit was sort of in the grounds of of that facility you know fenced in going through locked doors and that These are young kids who've really done have done nothing wrong but just had you know endless abuse in their early lives. And another thing that did come through was, you know, they were sent to these extra facilities, youth homes, then on to Lake Ellis. And no one ever in authority asked them why they had, you know, gone off the rails, so to speak, because of the abuse. No one asked them. And when they did, the, the kids did try to tell people, their parents or, or other, you know, doctors or whoever, you know, teachers, no one ever believed them.
0: I told the staff what Leeds was doing to me, but all they said, I was lying. And I kept telling them, but they just didn't believe me. And they told me it was my imagination playing up because of the drugs I was on.
1: People talk about being beaten up by staff or older patients, uh, sexually abused, raped. And then, of course, the big thing of Lake Alice, the the use of electric shocks and uh, you know painful drugs such as peraldehyde. Primarily, not for any medical reason, but primarily as a punishment. And that was the uh, time and time again the witnesses talked about going through that experience of being held down and given electric shock treatment. And the big thing about this is that most of it was without anaesthetic. I asked him, is it going to be painful? And he said, yes, it is. So I told him, well, I don't want it. Because I can see the way he's looking or written on his face something is not right here and that's when he put it on and put the mouth guard in I'll be thankful for that mouth guard because without a mouth guard uh, the person will end up biting his tongue off the pain that you feel from the electricity surging through your head is indescribable the scream that comes out of your mouth is also indescribable. The terror was so intense that you lost all bowel movement. Because when you have ECT and when it's medically applied, you are, it's called modified, you are given anaesthetics so you don't feel the pain and then uh, you're, you're allowed to recuperate from that. But these kids were often just taken and given electric shock treatment as a punishment without anaesthetic. It wasn't always just to the the temples where most ECT is given. It was also given to other parts of the body, including, including the genitals. And uh, they took days to... Uh, basically recuperate, but, you know, some kids were getting it day after day after day. It was just horrific, really.
0: You reported on one survivor who uh, was called Mr. AA, and he's ended up spending 40 of his 60 years in jail, and he actually described in, you know, quite minute detail what actually happened when he... um, when he was getting ECT, he, he talks about how the nurses wet his temples and he bit into a rubber mouthpiece so he didn't bite his tongue off.
1: All the stories are very similar. They're all given you know, they had the rubber tubes to put in their mouth so they could bite on it. And also it you know, comes back to the clinical leader of the unit, uh, the name we all know of now, Dr. Selwyn Leeks. He was the mastermind, so to speak, behind this this treatment which uh, no medical expert at the time or since has uh, described it as treatment. It was basically often, as described by some, as torture. And he had a modified, he modified an ECT machine where he could turn a dial and increase the pain when it suited him. And all the witnesses talked about the fact that he had this big smile on his face and he seemed to be really enjoying it. Sometimes I'll give you a hint. Mm -hmm. And that might be by walking around with the electrodes in the the little box. Tyron Marks was 11 when he was first sent to the Lake Alice Child and Adolescent Unit. Shaking it around, saying, no, it's your turn. This could be you. He says metal adapters like headphones were first dipped in salt water and then placed on his head. He turns the dial up and down so that you... uh, You're convulsing, you're shaking, you know, you're screaming, and you can hear everything that's going on. You can hear talking, you can hear laughing, and on average would last for about three, four, four minutes. And one case, of course, that has become quite prominent in this hearing, when he, this is Dr Leakes, allowed about four other boys to take control of the ECT machine and use it on another boy who had been abusing them sexually so basically he allowed them to take revenge on this boy by uh, using the ECT machine and increasing the, the, the pain levels so to speak and everyone has said it it was torture and there's no other way to describe it and said to me yes I think that's the spot I think I can make you scream louder and he did
0: Dr. Selwyn Leakes, he has, as you say, he's become sort of infamous now, but was he known about before these last couple of weeks when people started talking about him?
1: Yes, he's been known about for for many, many years. He was investigated by the Medical Council in about 1977, and it seems that some deal was done at the time that they didn't take further action and allowed him to leave the country, and that's when he went to Australia. That's back in 1978. And they also, the medical council, that is, gave him a certificate or a reference to say that he was uh, a qualified and upstanding uh, psychiatrist. You know, at the same time, knowing that his complaints went to the police back in the 70s, investigations were held in 19, around about 1997, Uh, and also another police investigation ending in 2010. But even after all the complaints, uh, no action was taken. The New Zealand police accept that in 2002 to 2010 period, police did not accord sufficient priority and resources to the investigation of allegations of criminal offending at the Child and Adolescent Unit at Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital. And interestingly... Currently, as we speak, the police are, uh, are carrying out another investigation into what happened at the unit, and in particular, the work of uh, Doctor Leakes. And we can expect the result from that in- investigation in the next couple of weeks. So, he certainly, it was well known. I think at the time, there was uh, when the police were investigating, and also, I guess, the medical council. A number of experts thought what he was doing was was appropriate, but uh, experts today, looking back, say it never was and never should have been. Because, you know, one expert would say it was great and the other experts say it wasn't. So uh, that, I guess, did make the inquiries back in those early days uh, fairly difficult. But it sounds like he was a bit of a a lone ranger in a way and he had the support of of the staff at the unit. Though a lot of them are saying, of course, that they were just carrying out orders, you couldn't question a doctor. They were sort of regarded as gods back in those days and you really had to do what you you were told. So, uh, That's one of the the problems with uh, what the survivors find about this. There's just a a lack of accountability.
0: Leakes was the mastermind, but there was nobody who questioned what he was doing?
1: A couple of staff members, one particularly a clinical psychologist, said he did question uh, what Dr Leakes was doing and he didn't want any part of it. There have also been a number of other staff members who have given evidence. And you've got to think that from some of the staff members, there's a little bit of supposedly, you know, memory loss or selective memory of what happened, and they sort of backing away from being heavily involved. This particular clinical psychologist said he was just a, a junior; was just, uh, you know, there to learn and had no real say and didn't know what was going on. Never saw ECT being given as a punish uh, as a punishment or broiled held or hide as a punishment. I never witnessed ECT at the unit.
0: That's psychiatrist Victor Soterik.
1: I do not remember any meetings with Dr Leakes or staff to discuss patient treatment. I was not aware of the children's view of ECT, as I never did any individual work with them. Though, through talking to people, I learned they were very fearful of them. A lot of the survivors have particularly pointed the finger at the psychologist saying he was there, he appeared to them to be Dr Leek's right-hand man. He uh, also was seemed to them to be in control of the, the group therapy sessions because that's come up a lot in the hearing. They had these group therapy sessions with the young people up to about 40 at a time and a lot of them said if you d- didn't speak up and talk, you're then... Uh, Given electric shock treatment as a punishment for not doing that, so they say this particular psychologist was involved.
0: Another of the survivors, Charlie Symes, he he uh, said he was regarded as a bit of a hero by other boys in the unit. He was there in um, 1975, and it was because he broke Dr. Leek's nose. What happened there?
1: Yes, and when they, he talked about that at the hearing, a bit of a sort of a murmur and a cheer coming up from the survivors in, in the uh, public gallery. What happened there was he uh, was, you know, he admitted he was a bit of a loose cannon and uh, you know, a bit of a troublemaker, but uh, one day he was walking down the corridor and someone grabbed him from behind and he didn't know who it was, so he lashed out. Started fighting furiously, not realising it, it was Dr. Leakes. So I bro- broke his nose in three places. I got a hammering from from ECT after that. I got ECT for six days in a row, and each time it was harder and harder. Hideous, uh, horrendous place, and they all basically lived in fear, fear that they would be picked out. Uh, in the crowd to get uh, electric shock treatment Uh, when Dr Lex often he came along on a Friday because he wasn't there full-time and Friday seems to be uh, the day they often got it and they all referred to it as Black Friday.
0: He's 92 now and he didn't give evidence his lawyer gave evidence on his behalf by video from Melbourne?
1: That's right and according to his lawyer he's got health problems and because of that and his age and lack of uh, cognitive uh, capability, he wasn't even in a position to instruct his lawyer. So certainly couldn't give evidence uh, to the Royal Commission in any way, shape or form. And because of his condition, the lawyer says, well, there's no point in, in the future for the police to charge Dr. Legs. And he said, sort of basically said to the Royal Commission, they can't make any recommendations for action to be taken against Dr Leakes because of his condition and the fact that he is incapable, according to the lawyer, of giving evidence. But this commission is about much more than the alleged conduct of Dr Leakes. In fact, I would submit that the true focus of the commission is and should be on the myriad failings of a system that, among other failings, has allowed such serious allegations to go untested for near on half a century. Though, of course, uh, survivors of Lake Alice. Uh, want accountability, and they want it to start with Dr Leakes. I think most people would expect it would be very difficult to have a trial for someone who's 92. You'd have to extradite him from Australia. That would be very difficult, but I guess possibly survivors want him to be charged, even if it's just in in a symbolic way. They want accountability, and they want justice, and they want adequate redress for what happened to them when they were children.
0: Who takes responsibility the Chair of the Inquiry, Judge Coral Shaw, ended the hearings on abuse at Lake Alice by repeating the words of Alana Thomas, a lawyer for the survivors. Ra Inga Hara Ora Ma who will take responsibility for the evil uh, and for the pain of the Lake Alice survivors. That is what this hearing is about. The buildings, are they still there?
1: They're still there in a sort of fairly derelict form, I believe. But uh, the hospital, Lake Alice, was closed, I think, in the, uh, itself in the 90s, the unit, the adolescent unit in the, uh, 1978. So it's basically, I think it's just fenced off and uh, uh, in ruins pretty much. In the middle of farmland, there are some unnamed graves uh, on the site from for particularly older people in the forensic unit who, who died during their time at the hospital. So uh, there's a, a, a tapu on, on the area as well. And at some stage soon, survivors want to go back there and have a sort of a healing ceremony with, uh, with local iwi, and that, that's likely to happen within the next few weeks.
0: That's it for today. I'm Sharon brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Alex Aylott-McMillan engineered it. Thanks to Andrew McCrae. And we'll leave you with the words of Lake Alice survivor Leonie McEnroe. On the 14th of June 2021... In this very room, the children of Lake Ellis began to speak. Whakarongo mai, whakarongo mai, listen to me, hear me. And so our story began, formally and finally taking our rightful place in the history of Aotearoa.